Turn in your Bibles to the book of Exodus. Excuse me, Exodus chapter 20. Today we will read Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 21. This is actually my second time preaching through the Ten Commandments with you guys. Um, I did so in, in September and October of 2010, so I, I'm sure this is all redundant for you guys. You know, it was only seven years ago, almost eight. Um, and I remember thinking as I, as I preached on the Ten Commandments uh, a little over seven years ago that, man, I covered everything. Number one, that's a very arrogant thing to say about the Scriptures. And number two, it's, it's a very false thing to say about the Scriptures because uh, the Scriptures are almost uh, limitless in the depth of what they speak to and what they answer. And the, the more I grow in my knowledge of the Scriptures, the more I understand that I will never understand any of them. And I just say that to tell you that as I preach through these Ten Commandments, I'm going to do my best to hit life as broadly as I possibly can, but there is absolutely no way I can hit every situation that these commandments speak to. We think that we can grasp these commandments wholly because they're, they're just ten simple statements of what we should or should not do. But life is far more complicated than ten simple statements oftentimes, and so sometimes there are questions of things that we have done, or decisions we have made, or things that we uh, might want to, decisions we might want to make, or things we might want to do, that we just may say, okay, how does the law speak to these things? Um, if you have those questions, call me. Don't hesitate. There, there's no way I can cover absolutely every situation uh, that is covered by the law in the, the 20 to 30 minutes that I speak to you on a Sunday morning. Um, so if, if these things raise questions, I am available. I am uh, I know sometimes my personality type is, is not the most open of, of people or sometimes probably don't come across as the easiest to talk to, but please, by all means, call me anytime. I'm more than happy to talk to, to you and work through how God does speak to some of these specific situations in our lives. And so please don't hesitate to avail yourself um, anytime you need. So we are today looking at the seventh commandment, and we'll look at that in the context of all ten. Hear the word of the Lord. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. 
You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. When the people saw the thunder and the lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Let us pray. Our God and Father above, our Lord and Savior, we do thank you for your law. We thank you for the light that it shines upon our lives. We thank you for the light that it shines upon the path that we are called to walk, a path that leads to holiness, a path that leads to communion with you, and a path that we are guided on by the Holy Spirit. Lord, help us to see where this law meets each of us. Help us to see where your entire law meets each of us, so that we might put to death those sinful things in our life and seek the joy of knowing you and of walking with you in fellowship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When we talked about the, the law to honor your father and your mother, we, we looked at that statement by Annie Leibovitz that, where she said that while the sexual revolution of the 1960s was unable to tear apart the structures of our country, they, she bragged about being successful in tearing apart the foundation of the family. When it comes to sex, the culture around us takes an attitude of, well, if it feels good, do it. And supposedly, we have a freedom in being able to live life in that way. However, the Bible has a very different view of the pleasure of physical intimacy. And the seventh commandment is the summary statement of the Bible's view of sexual intimacy and sexual ethics. Today, we're going to look at that commandment, and we're going to look at it in the context of what the Shorter Catechism says about it. And so please uh, refer to that as we refer to Scripture. As I considered what the Catechism said about the Seventh Commandment, I was actually struck by the fact that adultery does not show up again in question 71 or 72. What is the word that the confession uses to show us what is required and what is forbidden? It's the word chastity or the word chaste. So I looked up the word chastity in the Oxford English Dictionary, and it says that chastity is the state or practice of refraining from extramarital sexual intercourse. And its basis comes from a Latin word, castus, which means morally pure. Now why, it may seem obvious to us, but why would they choose chastity to talk about the seventh commandment, which is thou shalt not commit adultery. And they give us the answer in these two sets of three words that they use. In what is required of the seventh commandment, we are to preserve our own and our neighbor's chastity in heart, in speech, and in behavior. Those three words, heart, speech, and behavior, give us the answer. And the parallel words in what is forbidden is unchaste thoughts, words, and actions. Now, it's easy for us to see the correlation between 
the seventh commandment, adultery and chastity in both actions and behavior, that last of those three words there. Most of us, I would hope, would say that we have kept the seventh commandment, at least those of us who are married, in not committing adultery. Now, if you have committed adultery, there is forgiveness for that. God, through the gospel, offers forgiveness for the commission of adultery, and there is opportunity for restoration within the family for someone who has committed adultery as well. However, that is a sin, and hopefully each of us can say that we have not committed adultery, at least those of us that are married. But what about the rest of the commandment? What about those other two sets of words, hearts and thoughts, speech and words that we are given there? I think for us to understand that fully, we need to turn to Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus is seated on the mountain before the people. He is, he is giving his sermon on the mount, his, his interpretation of the law as we are to understand it for our lives in a broad sense. And he gives us these words in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. He says, You have heard that it was said, Do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Jesus is dealing with a spoken law. Now, not necessarily the law that we find in the Ten Commandments here, but the law as the Pharisees had interpreted it. They had taken the law, they had taken these Ten Commandments, and they had added extra, extra instruction to the law to help us make sure that we have not violated the Ten Commandments. Now, what, to me, one of the funniest uh, interpretations they gave is the Sabbath law where they had said that you could not walk any further on the Sabbath than a mile. Unless there was a meal at the end of that mile and then you could walk another mile to the next meal where you could walk another mile. And I, and I guess you could go as far as you wanted on the Sabbath as long as there was a snack laid out for you, a meal laid out for you every mile. They'd kind of given these provisions to where it seemed like they had expanded the law, but they had actually narrowed it. They had narrowed it to a point where it is merely our actions. It is merely what we do with our deeds or our actions. And we could say that we have kept the law by what we have done. So Sabbath breaking in the time of Jesus. Well, I wasn't breaking the Sabbath. I took my mile walk and there was a meal waiting for me and then I could walk back home without having to worry about violating the Sabbath. I couldn't fix that meal on the Sabbath. It had to be placed there the day before the Sabbath. Um, so I guess I would have gone out the day before and laid out a series of picnic baskets so I could walk as far as I needed to go and come back. But I could be sure that I had kept the Sabbath as long as I kept those rules with my outward actions. They had a very similar thing here with adultery. And Jesus says that's not the way it works. It's not merely refraining from sexual relationships outside of the relationship of marriage. 
It is far more than that. It has to do here with our words and our deeds. What does Jesus say here? He says, I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You know, we appreciate beauty. God has created beauty and we can appreciate that. But when we seek to make that beauty our own in a way that is idolatrous or in a way that is objectifying, we then demean that beauty and we then sin before God, even though we may never actually physically touch that beauty. Jesus says, if you look at a woman and you lust in your heart after her, you have committed the sin of adultery. Now, ladies, you're not off the hook here either. This, this goes the other way as well. If you look at a man with lust in your heart, you have committed the sin of adultery as well. But I think Jesus knows his audience. And I think sometimes this is more of a sin for us guys. Once again, ladies, not letting you off the hook, not denying the fact that you wrestle with lust as well. But oftentimes men are very visually tempted. And Jesus understands his audience here. He understands the Pharisees who may be able to stand there and say, hey, look, I have never committed adultery with another woman. But they may stand there before the people when they teach and lust after the women in the group that they are teaching to. Jesus understands that our thoughts are just as important as our actions. As we talked about last week with murder, murder starts with anger. Adultery starts with a look. Adultery starts with a second look that says, man, I want to make that person mine in a way that I have no right to, in a way that God has said you may not have that person. So it's not only our thoughts, it's not only our deeds, but it's also our speech. In the larger catechism under this question, it talks about uh, uh, crude joking is forbidden for us under the seventh commandment. I worked with truck drivers for four years. Talk about crude joking. But that is a violation of the seventh commandment. Anytime we joke about sex, anytime we think about sex outside the context of marriage, anytime we do anything in thought, word, or deed that violates how God has set up the family, we are objectifying another human being or another set of human beings. And humans are not objects. Humans are not given to us to satisfy our desires. Humans are fellow images of God whom we are to love, whom we are to cherish, and who we are to treat with dignity. And so God says, thou shalt not commit adultery. And Jesus expands that to remind us that all sin begins in the heart. All sin begins in the seat of the will and the emotions. And we must guard against objectifying someone or thinking unchaste thoughts about them. And when our culture says to us, if it feels good, do it, our culture is saying other human beings are nothing but objects meant to satisfy your desires. So what is the foundation for this commandment? Well, this foundation is found for us in creation. And this foundation is the biblical teaching on marriage. God created the heavens and earth, we're told in Genesis chapter 1, and at the, begin, at the end of Genesis chapter 1, we're told 
that he created us in the image of God. He created us male and female, and he gave us uh, some commands. He said, fill the earth and subdue it. Multiply and have dominion. Expand the boundaries of the garden. And chapter 2 kind of gives us an expanded view of the creation of humanity. And we're told that God created the garden. He created the plants. And in that garden, He placed Adam. And He says, fill the earth and subdue it. And then He marched all the animals in front of Adam, Adam according to their kind. Male and female according to their kind. He matched all the animals, marched all the animals in front of Adam. And said, name them. And Adam, that's part of the dominion that he was to have. And what did Adam notice? Well, there's male and female. And Adam noticed there's something missing with me. There's just me. There's male. And God said it wasn't good that Adam should be alone. Adam didn't just need a friend. He didn't need a companion. He needed somebody to help him fulfill his role as the image of God. And so he put Adam into a deep sleep and he created woman. And Adam woke up and he saw this, this woman, he saw this, this necessary ally, as one commentator um, uh, translate that word that we normally think of as helper or help meet. He sees this necessary ally in his work to expand the garden and to fill the earth. And he says, man, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. The first love poem uh, ever written in, in, in human history. Adam looks at his wife Eve and he says, here's, here's this thing that completes me. Here's my necessary ally in the work necessary that God has given to me. And God says, or Moses says, he says, for this reason, a man leaves his father and mother and fuses or cleaves with his wife and the two shall become one flesh. In a world that there was not yet fathers, in a world that there was not yet mothers, God puts down this decree that a man will leave his father and mother and join with his wife uh, as two people tasked with spreading God's glory in the world. God designed humans to be married. And he did that by designing us male and female. And our culture actually sees benefits from marriage. In his article, Why Marriage is Better Than Cohabitation, Steve Challies gives us five reasons uh, that he summarizes from Christopher Ashe's book, Married for God. And the first thing he says is that marriage for us is unambiguous. What does he mean by that? There is a very defined relationship in marriage. Marriage lets us know and lets the world know how two people relate to one another. He says it's a marriage is a union of families. It's not just two individuals who hang out together. It's the joining of a man and a woman. It's the joining of in-laws. It's the joining of cousins. Uh, when I first got married, I had a very limited number of cousins. I had two cousins. Now my cousins are like the stars of the sky. They're innumerable because Michelle has cousins everywhere. When we got married, they became my cousins. I don't call them cousins-in-law. I call them cousins. The only people I add in-law on the end of it is my mother and father-in-law. Because I have a mother and father, but I also have another mother and father because we've joined these two families together. There's no family support. Marriage provides protection for the vulnerable 
at the beginning of the marriage. It defines how that relationship is going to work. It defines how in a sinful world that relationship will end if it ends, whether it's by death or other means that we're told in Scripture that God hates. But it provides protection for both parties of the marriage. If in a sinful world marriage does end, it offers hope of justice to those wronged when it ends. And lastly, it strengthens private intentions with public promises. I on May 20 no, no, not 24th. May 14th, 1994, I do know when my anniversary is. <laughs> on May 19th, 19 May <laughs> One day in May, it was a Saturday, I think, and I think it was around 1 o'clock. On May 14th, 1994, there were more than two people standing in that room when I said I do. There were a group of people who stood there, not only giving consent to my marriage before God, but in their being there saying, I will support you and I will hold you accountable to the vows that you are giving today. It's not just, it wasn't just me and Michelle that day. It was all those people in that room. It was family. It was friends. It was people saying, look, you are committing to one another and we are going to hold you accountable to that commitment. When I said for better or for worse, they said for better or for worse. When I said in sickness and in health, they said, I'm going to remind you of in sickness and in health. When I said for richer or poorer, we're going to remind you of richer and poorer. I had an entire community that lifted me up that took care of that promised to take care of me and that promised to see and protect Michelle as well in that marriage relationship. But not only do we have the foundation of this commandment in the institution of marriage, we have those cryptic words of Paul where he said, I'm not talking about marriage. I'm talking about Christ and the church. In Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 8 through 14, God describes through Ezekiel the nation of Israel as a daughter who had been abused and kicked out of her family. And he says, I will be your husband. I will cover you. I will protect you. I will take care of you. I will commit myself to you. In the book of Hosea, we have this almost disturbingly beautiful picture of an unfaithful marriage. Hosea the prophet is told to go marry a prostitute who was unwilling to give up her night job. And every time Gomer leaves Hosea, he goes out and he gets her, even to the point where she has gotten herself sold into slavery. And he has to raise a fortune to go out and purchase her back as his bride. And Paul says marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. Christ has committed himself to the church wholeheartedly. And when we are faithless, he remains faithful. Hosea, God in Hosea describes the relationship of Israel with God as an adulterous relationship where the husband remained faithful, even though the wife was faithless and intentionally pursued other gods. Whenever we break God's law, whether it's the seventh commandment or the first or the tenth or whatever law it is that we break, we are intentionally pursuing other gods, even if that God is our own will, our own desires, our own pleasure. 
And yet God says, because of the work of my son, Jesus Christ, I will remain faithful. I promise to save you if you believe in me. I will remain faithful when you stray. I promise to save you when you believed in me. I will remain faithful when you commit adultery with other gods. And I will continue to love you. And I will continue to lift you up. That is the glorious message of marriage. When marriage works well, it is a picture of how God relates to his people. When marriage works poorly and there is reconciliation, it is a picture of how God relates to his people. Marriage is a picture of God's relationship with his people. And when we do things in our marriage or when we pursue practices that are only given in the context of marriage and claim to be a Christian, we sully God's name. We muddy God's glory. And God is very particular about his glory. So we are given the command to remain chaste in our thoughts, in our words, and in our deeds. And this command of chastity is built upon the foundation of God's intention for marriage and the fact that marriage reflects God's relationship with his people. Now, as I wrap this up, I want us to make sure that you know I understand that not, only, not everyone has been gifted in this world with the gift of marriage. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 that he's gifted some people with singleness and he's gifted some people with marriage. But Psalm 68, 6 says that God takes the lonely, the afflicted, and he sets them, he places them in families. This is the family that we are placed in today. God said, for those of you that are single, he said, Paul said, excuse me, not God. Paul said, it may be more advantageous for you to pursue singleness. Why did he say that? It's because life was hard in Corinth during those days. There was a famine in the land. And if you took on the extra responsibility of a spouse, that meant it's already hard enough to find food for one people. Now you get to find food for two. Joanne loaned me a wonderful book about it's a history of the Covenanters through the life of a man by the name of John Brown of Preschel. He got married at the age of 55 to 58 to a young lady. And at his wedding, the preacher said, you're going said to the wife, you're going to lose your husband. Because he will be martyred for the cause of Christ. Are you okay with that? Paul would have said, hey, knowing that, avoid marriage. It would have been difficult. They went into marriage and they had a very wonderful marriage. Um, a very loving marriage, a very caring marriage. In fact, when the man murdered uh, John Brown, he looked at the, the man looked at John Brown's wife and says, what do you think of your husband now? She says, I love him more now than I ever did. Because he stood up for Christ. But we have to weigh those things when we go into marriage. But Paul also says, you know, God does give some with marriage and, and God will sustain people through difficult marriages. All that to say that God has placed us in the family of the church. And when God takes care of the lonely, he does it in the context of the church. And we that have been placed in physical families need to be aware that there are some who have not been placed in physical families, but are placed in the spiritual family of the church. And we should take care of them as we would a spouse. 
What I want us to see today as we look at the command and as we look at the foundation of the command is that when we engage in any type of sexual activity, whether it's in thought, whether it's in word, or whether it's in deed that is outside God's plan for marriage, we not only degrade the institution of marriage, we degrade the glory for the, of the work which Christ did for the people of God. Christ is the groom of the church. Christ is working to sanctify us, to make us holy, to present us holy before God. And marriage is a picture of that in the world. Don't make it something less than the glory that it is. Let us pray. Our God and Father above, we do thank you for that picture that we have of your relationship with your people. The picture of a faithful husband, even though sometimes we as the bride of Christ are faithless even though most of the time we as the bride of Christ are faithless. Lord, help us in our culture that seems to hate marriage. Help those of us that are married to esteem it and to show the world that it is a glorious institution given to us by you so that the world may see your love, so that the world may see your glory, so that the world may see your grace. Lord, we love you. And we love that you have loved us enough to commit yourself to us wholeheartedly. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.